my hope with the book was to inspire people with our love of the oceans, educate them some, and then empower them to actually get some traction on reducing their dependence on plastic. This is Evolve CPG, a community of purpose-driven brand leaders who not only believe in better, but actively pursue it. As better products, better brands, better leadership for a better world. Thanks to you, our listeners, this podcast is now ranked in the top 10% of all podcasts globally. Let's not stop there, though. If you like our show, please take a moment to leave us a rating or review and share your favorite episodes with your network. The more people we reach, the more good we can bring about in this world. If you work in the industry, you can also join our online community where we're going further, faster, together at community.evolvecpg.com. I'm your host, Gage Mitchell, founder and creative director of Modern Species, a sustainable brand design agency helping better brands grow and scale their impact. Since the day we launched, we've been lucky enough to book some amazing guests on our show. Now, as we inch closer to 100 episodes, we thought we'd take a moment to replay some of our top hits from 2021 to remind you all to dig back in the archives from time to time, because there's a lot of wisdom just waiting for you to tune in. This is Evolve CPG, a community of purpose-driven, sustainable product brand leaders who not only believe in better, but actively pursue it. I'm your host, Gage Mitchell, and today we're speaking with Sandra Ann Harris, CEO and founder of Eco Lunchbox. You can find her new book, Say Goodbye to Plastic, a survival guide for plastic-free living, online or at a local bookstore near you. I'd like to talk a little bit about your career arc. As I was poking around your LinkedIn page, I noticed that impact has kind of been in your blood from the beginning. In fact, it looked like you started your career as a humanitarian aid worker, and then obviously you flowed that into a journalism career and then into be- becoming an entrepreneur. So I'm curious to hear like how that journey came about. Well, I, I actually started as a journalist right out of college. Um, I majored in poetry, so I've always been a dreamer. And I've also been very, very curious. So the first thing that I did is go from being a poetry major to a journalist. I was looking through the classified ads. You know, this was back in the day when that's how you found a job. And I was using highlighters to look at what can I do and what do I like to do? And I thought, you know, I like to ask questions and learn stuff and take pictures. So I sort of just by accident ended up in journalism. And I did that for about 15 years. And my specialty was reporting things from the bottom up, you know, so really, you know, getting down to the street level, not just reporting things from the press releases and talking to people and how they were impacted by whatever was going on in their community and then framing it within a larger perspective. From there, I morphed into humanitarian aid work because I had an assignment for the San Francisco Chronicle to go to Vietnam in the late 90s. And my husband is Vietnamese. And we fell in love with a nonprofit in central Vietnam in Da Nang called East Meets West. And so we were living there and doing humanitarian aid. And then there have been other chapters, but everything that I've done in my career has been bottom up. You know, how, how can I make some sort of an impact through my work that affects people's daily lives, whether it's having their voice be heard, 
you know, maybe it's a voice that doesn't often have the chance to tell her story or, you know, helping villagers deep out in the rice paddies who don't have access to medical water, school, et cetera. And so when I started Eco Lunchbox 12 years ago, it looks a little scattershot, my background, but um, there's actually a method to my madness. I noticed that there really, there wasn't anything on the market that was plastic free. And I saw a real opportunity to make some change and help families reduce their dependence on plastics. Nice. That's cool. So speaking of the bottom up question about the journalism side of things, how did you choose stories or how did you identify what things needed to bubble up from the bottom up? I can't say that there was really a scientific method around that, but you know, whether, whether it was like the three strikes you're out law in California where somebody would steal a pack of cigarettes and they'd be in yeah. jail for life to tell that story and then frame it up with policy and try to push on the people to make change out in Sacramento. I'm here in California or, you know, I had a Fulbright scholarship in Barcelona as a professional journalist through the state department and they were promoting um, all of these fancy new Olympic developments. Well, in the meantime, all of the working class people were being displaced. They were basically just demolishing whole neighborhoods. And those people didn't have a voice in the planning process. So it seems like, you know, stories sort of lift their head up and let themselves be known. But a lot of times, unfortunately, the, the little guy's perspective gets lost in the noise. Yeah. It almost sounds like you had the ability to just like lift up the carpet and see what was swept under there and then have the actual empathy or compassion to to want to be able to tell that story. Right. And being able to get in my car or get on an airplane and go to the villages in Vietnam and to just be there with a very open heart and an open mind to see what's going on here and, you know, what are the stories that need to be told. So... And I continue to do that with my work in plastic. You know, from the very beginning, our marketing was storytelling and educating, interviewing people who were doing research, whether it was Captain Moore with Algalita or other change makers, and reporting from those people to our community of Eco Lunchbox users, because we do the plastic free containers, you know, what was happening in terms of plastic scientifically out in the environment and in our own bodies. You know, and you're, I'm, I was in uh, the Oakland, Berkeley area at that time. And, you know, at the playground, you run into a scientist at UC Berkeley who's doing lab rat studies with BPA, the estrogen mimicking chemical and plastic. And I say, you know, is it all that dangerous? Or is somebody just exaggerating? Because I was questioning everything. You know, all these granola types. He said, no, actually, the rats are dying like this. Any any kind of tiny little dose of BPA, we're seeing drastic detrimental wow. health effects on the rats, you know. And so it's just interesting how if you tune to your curiosity and are open to receiving what will just appear right in front of you in terms yeah. of information. Um, and That's so that great. was a pivotal moment for me, becoming resolute in in founding Eco Lunchbox, you know, and I couldn't have found the guy if I wanted to. <laughs> we went to the playground and I had so much curiosity about yeah. plastic. That's cool. So a lot of your history had to do with like social impact or injustice happening. And then you came to this plastic issue. So what was it about the 
the plastic issue that that got you so sold that you decided you had to launch a company around it? Well, great question. It was really twofold. I have two kids. They're pretty grown up now, a 17-year-old and a 20-year-old. But in 2003, when I was living um, next to Berkeley, my eldest went off to preschool and I had to start packing him a lunch. And I remember going into the preschool to pick him up one day and the trash cans were literally overflowing. I mean, it was like a cartoon. They were just sort of billowing out plastic trash, you know, the juice boxes and the little straws and the the cheese stick wrappers. Remember those when those were so yep. popular and the little prepackaged, the prepackaged munchables. Yeah, <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. The yogurt squeezies. And, you know, I could go on and on, but I'm just trying to paint a picture of what this overflowing trash can was almost more a waste than the kids ate in food. Yeah. And a lot of food was being thrown out too. And it was jaw dropping. You know, I hadn't really been around a lunchtime like that. You know, I was a young mother since maybe my elementary school days, you know, and so it was shocking. And as an environmentalist, um, I've done tons of backpacking and kayaking and sailing and, you know, I'm very connected to the earth And then what's more precious than my own child? I I was just really horrified. At that time, Clean Canteen was coming to market with a stainless steel water bottle and starting to talk about the dangers of plastic. At that time, it just seemed really outlandish that our government would allow us to use a product that would have chemicals that could be hurting our health. I mean, really, no one believed it. They, they thought, you know, that was just exaggeration. But being the curious sort, I started to do some research and look into it, looked at some of the other water bottles like SIG made by a Swiss company yeah. and had a proprietary lining on the inside of their uh, aluminum bottle. They had these cute kids bottles printed with bright colors. And well, they wouldn't really tell me what that lining was, but it protected the liquid against touching the aluminum because aluminum mm-hmm. is not recommended for food safe. Well, what could that be? Well, lo and behold, turns out they were coating the inside of these expensive metal aluminum bottles with plastic. So they were really no better <laughs> oh than plastic, yeah. <laughs> even though they were charging, you know, like quadruple and marketing them as these eco-friendly, healthy alternatives. So I started to go down... <laughs> I <laughs> covered a plastic really bottle in a rabbit holes, and I just got really outraged. I was like, this is not cool. You know, these kids, all this trash, you know, even if I wanted to get away from the plastic food containers, there was nothing that I could pair with my clean canteen. So I, I thought, you know, come on, how hard could this be, right? <laughs> Classic question. Like to friends and family, like some, you know, plastic-free food containers. You know, there's the dreamer in me, the poet. Like, you know, this couldn't be too, too bad. Well, that that was the beginning of probably the most challenging thing I've ever undertaken in my whole life, being a mission-based, socially responsible, oh, yeah. most rewarding too. But. I, I have been very challenged by this endeavor. Yeah, with struggles come growth, right? It's yeah. tough because going towards a path that's going to have a lot of resistance is scary and it's hard and it's expensive and it takes longer. But when you come out the other end, you've accomplished something that nobody else would have accomplished because you actually saw it through. Yeah, and you know the experience has changed me and. 
I can see that over the years, our products have made an impact as well, but it's a two-way street for sure. You know, I've grown and benefited so much from this challenge. Speaking of which, that's actually leads me into another question that I wanted to ask you about is in the beginning of the company, when you're launching it, obviously that's a huge set of challenges. So I'd love you to talk about maybe what were some of those biggest struggles when launching and then as you're kind of flowing through that, like also after you've launched a company, as you're growing the company, what, what kind of challenges, new challenges, unforeseen challenges pop up? I'm not even sure where to start with that question. <laughs> There's so many. <laughs> you know, one of the reasons I wrote the book was to give people kind of a peek behind the curtain into how anyone, even a poetry major who's a dreamer, <laughs> you know, can start a company. But I just started with kind of a back of the napkin SWOT analysis, strength, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. And I I went from there. I mean, one challenge was what kind of margins do retailers require? How should I price my products? Um, Who am I going to buy my products from? You know, I had young children. How am I going to find a reliable, ethical manufacturer without leaving California? Because I wasn't in a position that I could afford to leave my children or, you know, who's going to watch them while I was gone. So, I mean, I literally started it, you know, at my kitchen table and it was only through Alibaba that I met a young woman who was the daughter of a factory owner in India who I really connected with. And she was really excited to be working with a California woman. I mean, to this day, she hasn't left India or come Mm -hmm. to the West. And so it was really exotic and exciting for her. And she wasn't a mother yet. She, She is a mother now. But when I talked to her about quality and about working conditions and about no sharp edges and about easy to use clips for the children, she got it in a way that other men who I had nice. been contacting in India, because they have this long tradition in Tiffins, they didn't get it. They just thought I was being sort of an uptight, pers- <laughs> you know, overly detail oriented Western buyer. Whereas with her, she was like, yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. I understand. Yes. And so we developed a working relationship and I still work with them 12 years later. Nice. But I mean, huge challenges, you know, shipping orders to Whole Foods and the container store out of my garage, you know, and also trying to be mom and watch the kids. I was working with artisan block printers in Gujarat. Well, they have something called monsoons. And even if they think they're shipping you dry, handmade artisan block printed bags, when they arrive here, they're wet, you know, because it's probably 100% when they pack them up to send them. Well, you know, putting out blankets outside in the hot California sun and drying them like pancakes, you know, flipping them from side to side, you know, before we put them into storage so that they wouldn't mildew. It's been kind of, you know... One adventure after the other. (laughs) I think that's the thing I've learned the most about entrepreneurship is that right when you solve one challenge, another challenge pops up in its place so that it's never boring. (laughs) I'll give it that. But it doesn't ever feel like you've got it under control because the market changes, your business changes, your scale changes, your customer changes, like whatever. So it's always some new challenge to fix. But as somebody who likes challenges to work on, I I kind of enjoy that. 
So what about now? If I don't have a challenge, I get bored and, you know, I would change my jobs frequently prior to starting Eco Lunchbox because I'd figure it out and I'd be ready to move on. Well, I'll tell you, you know, every every day there's something new that I'm learning about at Eco Lunchbox, you know, whether it's going through the B Corp certification, you know, yeah. or the California Green Business Certification and learning about how to calculate our carbon footprint and what it means to buy offsets and all sorts of operational improvements that we can make to reduce our impact on Mother Earth or something as boring as trying to figure out during COVID how to get freight out of India and China. Oh, my gosh. You know, I mean, it just, it never, it literally never stops. Yeah, you wake up each morning wondering what challenge you're going to have to solve today or what fire you're going to have to put out. But to the earlier point, like the more of those challenges you face, the more you come out the other end, I, I think with, with some confidence that you'll be able to figure out whatever other future challenges pop up because you've been through so much and somehow come out the other yeah. side that I get less and less scared of taking on challenges because, you know, follow a process, figure it out and deal with the punches as they come. So, yeah, well, with curiosity and creativity, there's nowhere you can't go. I think, unfortunately, just to get on a tiny tangent about the educational system, creativity isn't valued as much in our system as I think it should be. And a researcher at Stanford was the one, his name is Eisner, who did a study looking at the future of the globalized economy and what kinds of jobs we can retain here in the United States. And basically, it's at that nexus of you know, synthesizing, creatively looking at, you know, technical, environmental issues, how they can weave together, you know, and innovating new solutions that we have a special suchness here in the United States that we can continue to offer to the global economy. Just teaching people to memorize equations and repeat correctly, you know, mathematical, you know, concepts isn't going to help us solve climate change or tackle the big problems that are ahead of us because there are no tried and true solutions. We have to make it up as we go along, basically. Yeah, you can't scale until you have the solution. And to get the solution, you need to be able to connect the dots and kind of be creative and innovative and be willing to take some risks. Right. And to go with a minimal viable product, you know, the whole MVP philosophy, put something to market, you know, the best you can and see if people will buy it, you know, and then tweak it and try again. Uh, Speaking of which, I know you have some some history of using crowdfunding to get some products out there. So how did you come to that solution? Like, what are the benefits of crowdfunding versus going in, getting investors or trying to lock down some early clients for, you know, retail clients or something? Yeah, well, that's interesting. You would say lock down some early clients. You know, I know that used to be a strategy and it may still be for some businesses. The thing is we launched in Target and sold 1,300 stores in Target for a stretch, but then they changed what they wanted to do. And even though we were selling well and they were driving orders, you know, that doesn't mean that they're going to want to continue to do that. And so then they pivoted we had pallets and pallets full of stuff that we had packed up. And then they said, Oh, well, actually, you know, we're going to use the shelf space for something else. And I'm like, (laughs) so that can be kind of risky because just because you get a PO doesn't mean that it's going to be honored. Right. 
Right. I think, yeah. you know, that the old ethical handshake kind of business ethic is washing away, especially during COVID times. It's everyone out for themselves. So unless you have a prepaid order, who knows what's going to happen with it. Back to your question about crowdfunding. So I continue to own Eco Launchbox and I did pitch Investor Circle and other investor organizations, Karetsu, North Bay Angels, and, and others. But okay. there wasn't the mission alignment mm-hmm. with the investors. You know, they were really looking at one bottom line. And I, I'm guessing most of, most of us can guess which one that was, right? Profit. And yeah. when you're buying products like ours made from steel and silicon, your cost of goods is pretty high, right? And so I'd give this whole spiel on, you know, how we have to save ourselves and the world from plastic and, you know, talk about the estrogen mimicking chemicals. And I I share some of this in the book, Say Goodbye to Plastic. And then at the end, they'd be like, oh, sweetie, you're doing such a good job with this business. You know, have you ever thought about using some plastic to drive down your goods? (laughs) Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Yeah, you just missed the whole... straight face, like... (laughs) And I'm like, did anyone hear anything that I just said, literally? They were asleep during that first part. What? Huh? I was checking my messages. <laughs> it was such a like helpful way. Like, like, yeah, you could really drive down your cost of goods. And I was like, oh, my goodness. You know? Yeah. <laughs> so if you're not going to take somebody else's money to inject financial energy, you know, into your organization. And the risk of that obviously is that you could take money from someone who doesn't align with what you want to do and they could steer the organization off course. Right. Yeah. Um, yep. And it happened quite a few times, I think. Yeah. And if you're self-funding, I remember I had advisors say, it's so great that you're profitable, like from the early years. And I was like, uh, yeah, this is like my money. It's not yeah. monopoly money. <laughs> yeah. It's a business. I don't have just a bunch of like angel investors. That's one thing that always frustrates me about the tech world is for like their first 10 years in business or whatever, they're never expected to make a dime just because people want that big payoff once they do turn on advertising or something. But just frustrating because they end up not having to worry about how much they're paying employees or how much they're investing in this or that or anything that a more bootstrapped entrepreneur has to be financially viable from day one or else you're not going to get to day 100 or 300 or 500. Exactly. I mean, if you don't have a daddy Warbucks, I mean, you got to mm-hmm. keep it real, right? So when you're putting to market a, a new a new product, like a lunchbox, particularly, you know, it's not vaporware, you know, it's a physical product that needs to be, you know, molded. So you have to, you know, go through a CAD process and purchase molds and go through a sampling and a tweaking so the lids don't leak. And it's tens of thousands of dollars just to get yeah. out the door, you know, with the designs and the hardware that you need to make this physical product. Yeah. And then usually there's a minimum of like 5,000 units, the minimum word quantity. And that's actually a low minimum. Um, I'm very fortunate that my partners allowed me to order at 5,000 units. So you put the two together and crowdfunding starts to make a lot of sense if you can get a community of people who are really excited about what you're doing to put their money down up front and then that'll help you fund some of those capital costs. 
So I would recommend it, you know, depending on what the product is. So we put together different rewards packages, you know, for different levels of backers. And it it was an opportunity for us also to introduce the Kickstarter community that lives over there on the Kickstarter site, you know, to who we were, you know, a private small brand at ecolunchboxes.com and hopefully convert some of those people into customers as well. It can be challenging if you have a small domain, even if you're like us and you have tens of thousands of people in your communities and on your email list, you know, driving that traffic and capturing those eyeballs on a private domain is challenging. Um, So crowdfunding is, it can be a good idea if if you really know what you want to do and you know you can get the product made at the margins that are going to be viable in the marketplace. I think when things go wrong, People really haven't penciled the numbers. They're just too early to even put it up for crowdfunding. Like they don't even know if they can do it or how much it's going to cost. And, you know, recently I backed a really cool puzzle project uh, and it seemed like a great team of savvy entrepreneurs. And it was this very cool puzzle. We like to play games and I've literally been waiting years and now they just years now. So Oh, you, wow. know, there are, you think like Kickstarter, you know, the brand, mm-hmm. if you order it, you'll definitely get it. Not so. Yeah, not the case. Yeah, I've noticed that uh, the more real and feasible, whatever that your product looks, the more likely you'll be able to f- get your project funded or even go beyond your funding. Because probably because of that, a lot of people have been burned from projects that didn't go through. So that building that trust up front is good. So it sounded like, you know, building some capital in a mission-lined kind of fashion, as well as getting access to maybe some new customers that you didn't have access to before. Mm-hmm. Have you also used crowdfunding as a way to test the appetite for a product in a market? I haven't. Um, usually, we're pretty far down the road. We've we've done crowdfunding twice, and usually, we're we're pretty far down the road. And I'm committed to doing the product. It's something that I think is innovative enough that you know we're not trying to do something similar to something that's already existing, and that we have a compelling story to tell. In the case of our Kickstarter for our Blue Water Bento line, we talked about putting embossed designs on the silicon no-leak lids that Mm -hmm. top the stainless steel containers to call up people's love of the oceans. Earlier in the business, when I was marketing our products, I spoke a lot about the personal health benefits of reducing dependence on plastics because a lot of people sort of start with me, you know, body as temple. You know, and then they, their family, and they want to protect themselves individually. And there wasn't really an interest or an understanding that plastic pollution was accumulating in our oceans, you know, and having a devastating effect. But later on in the business, um, starting kind of in 2015, as a country, we started to turn the corner and it wasn't just the far out environmentalists that we're, you know, really digesting the fact that, you know, we were actually poisoning our planet with plastic. This wasn't an exaggeration. You know, I think when they first started, and I talk about this in the book, Say Goodbye to Plastic, when they first started to talk about the plastic out in the ocean, maybe you remember they called it the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. Yeah. 
Right. And that there was, you know, a massive garbage the size of Texas floating out there, which later, you know, they changed the language around that because people in their mind couldn't believe that the plastic had supposedly, you know, massed together so much that it looked like a landform. You know, it was kind of a conceptual way that they were trying to call people's idea to the fact that the plastic was accumulating when actually it's more aptly described as like a plastic smog made up of broken down trillions of broken down pieces, you know, from microplastics all the way up to chunks of fishing debris. You know, a lot of the debris out there is, you know, fishing debris. And then there's all the waste that flows off the landforms. But as I was saying, when we launched the, the Kickstarter, people were starting to connect that what their daily habits were in terms of plastic could have either a very negative effect, you know, on our oceans or a lesser effect. So instead of trying to lecture them about evil people use plastic, you know, like get them all feeling like depressed and like they can't do it at all. They're like, well, this problem is so huge. You know, what's my little, you know, plastic footprint going to do if I lessen it in terms of contributing positively. And so we talked in the Kickstarter about love of our oceans and these issues, but to celebrate our big blue at lunchtime and remember why we were making these changes in our lunchtime habits by seeing these lids and having that happy, positive feeling rather than a depressed, powerless feeling. I think it's working. I really do. Yeah. I think people are, especially in these weird times that we're living in, they're hungry for some happiness, you know, and historically a lot of advertising can focus around negativity and fear to get you motivated to do something, you know, the natural product, the organic industry does a lot of that of like trying to get you to think about all the bad stuff that you should be avoiding. But, but what about all the good stuff that you're getting by supporting these healthier, happier ways of living? Like, I feel like we, it's good to like focus on that in your messaging too. Uh, Yeah, I think so. I mean, uh, because I was an investigative journalist, I, I tended to want to just sort of hammer on people with all the facts, you know, more fish, more plastic in the ocean than fish, you know, is it 5 billion particles or is it trillion particles and, you know, all the facts and stats. But if you just look broadly at, you know, the, the trending and at the devastation, you don't have to know all the nitty gritties of the statistics. You can just understand at a human level that things must change and that we all have to jump in and be part of that however we can, whether it's in our own homes or in the book. The book's divided into different sections. So the beginning of the book is it's an inspirational ode to the ocean and sort of pulls on my poetry background. And I had a very emotional, positive experience in Northern California in a pristine area. And so I sort of paint a picture of loving the oceans. And then I tell the story. Um, it's sort of part memoir, memoir and part sort of explanatory information about how we got to where we are with the plastic pollution crisis. And then the book's divided into chapters. And I invite people to start their journey or continue their journey of eliminating excess plastic from their lives, whether it's in the bathroom they want to start or in their wardrobe or, you know, whatever room calls to them, I invite them to start there. Nice. So speaking of the book, as a 
you know, it makes sense with your journalism background and as a kind of mission-driven entrepreneur that's now a thought leader in this plastic space that, of course, you would write a book at some point, maybe even why did it take you so long? But let's focus more on, <laughs> let's focus more on why this book? Why now? Like, what were your goals for launching this? Yeah, it's interesting. As I was growing up, everyone always told me, Sandra, you have ink in your blood. Because the first thing I am, even before being an entrepreneur, is a storyteller and a writer. And I always wanted to write a book, but I've been so busy with Eco Lunchbox that there hasn't been much time for that. But a couple of years ago, an environmental publisher called Hatherly Press found me and reached out to me and asked me if I would write the book. And my first thought was, I only have 24 hours in the day. And then I was like, of course, I'm going to write the book. (laughs) So it sort of just fell into my lap. And my motivation for writing the book was, you know, both to encourage people inspire them, you know, with their, our collective love of the oceans, as well as teach them by providing some tactical suggestions on, you know, how you can reduce dependence on plastics, as well as at a policy level, make some suggestions of how those of us who really care about the plastic issue can expand our impact beyond ourselves, whether it's like going to the dentist, you know, how they always give you the free plastic toothbrushes. I'm saying, uh, no, thank you. Can I provide information about how you could instead distribute bamboo or writing to your local city council to suggest that they allow takeout containers to be reusable in the restaurants in town? Unfortunately, that's not happening right now because of COVID, (laughs) but we hope that that will return. So in short, my hope with the book was to inspire people with our love of the oceans, educate them some, and then empower them to actually get some traction on reducing their dependence on plastic. And then at the end of the book, um, I again return to inspiring and talking a little bit about how the whales, you know, were once extinct, you know, and talk about a little heard voice. You remember the song of the whales and that they, we heard, we heard their cries and we heeded them as an international community and the whales have now survived and they're threatened now with plastic pollution, but they came back from the brink of extinction, right? If we can do that with the whales, I believe there's no need for hopelessness. Let's just roll up our sleeves and get to work eliminating absolutely as much plastic as we can from our lives, our world, working on the policy level, doing whatever we can. Yeah, that's great. So a dose of hope as well as some actionable next steps, because I think people get really overwhelmed with all the things that all the problems that need to be solved in this world and a little guidance on the next best thing they can do is great. So that sounds like perfect timing. We need books like that. And congrats on the book launch. I did not want to put out like a depressing book. I really yeah. didn't. <laughs> that was my my reaction to like Cradle to Cradle. Like when that book came out, like after you finish reading that, you're like, we're screwed. Like everything, everything is killing us. We're destroying the planet. Like what are we going to do? And I know they launched their other book, Upcycle, shortly after that. And I seem to remember in the intro of that book, they basically apologized 
for the depressive tone of Cradle to Cradle, and that's why they wrote Upcycle to be a little bit more hopeful. <laughs> oh, but it, you know, it did. Spark I mean, these were adorable. That's adorable. You know, it sounds like it came from a very authentic place. That apology, yeah. but it just goes back to we have to open people's ability to receive information, and usually that starts with the heart. You know, as yeah. Jacques say, Jacques says, you know, we protect what we love. You know, he didn't say we protect what we think. He said we protect what we love. You know, we open up that heart chakra and it's amazing what we can do with the power of love. Yeah, that's beautiful. Do you have any quick pro tips for other entrepreneurs or thought leaders who are thinking about writing their own book? Well, that's a great question. I thought I was a very experienced writer. And as I said, when they said, would you want to write this book? I said, oh, sure. Yeah, no problem. I'm a writer. You know, I got this, right? I mean, how hard could it be? You know, I've I've written thousands and thousands of newspaper articles, magazine articles. I know a lot about writing short stories, poems. And then I got writer's block. Oh, no. Tiny bit, seriously. It was like so weird. So then I, I asked this friend of the family what her advice was. And I explained, you know, that... It wasn't the writing. It was just like how to tell my story from the first person is what was so daunting to me because I was so used to telling other people's stories from mm, the bottom gotcha. up. Gotcha. Yeah, that makes sense. Them and giving them voice. But this is the first time that I've ever told my own story, right? And I decided I did want to hold the book in the first person and that I see myself as the author, as the guide. It's not just a an instruction manual, right? It's my input. And I, so the whole book is wrapped with my story. And so I asked her what to do. And she said, well, just pretend you're a journalist, put together a whole bunch of questions for yourself and then ask yourself the questions and don't worry about how it's going to be organized in the book. Just use it as a like self brainstorming session so I put all, I typed up, you know, like a whole bunch of questions like, so Sandra, tell me about, <laughs> it was a little weird. And I put it into a Google doc and I went out in my backyard and we have a beautiful giant sequoia tree back there. And I had my cup of tea and I had my cell phone. I opened up Google drive and I used the microphone and I dictated answers, just sort of stream of consciousness, you know, oh, in, nice this Google doc, you know, when she said, just do it with no judgment. You're, this is not the final draft. You're just creating a container to hold all of the information. It'll become your well, where, where you will go, you know, as you're writing the book. And I thought it was a brilliant method. So that's what I did. And then I just cracked it open. Great. That's awesome. That's a good tip. Yeah. I've, I've yeah. been, Asking lots of people for tips because I've got um, friends that are working on books. I've also been curious to work on a book uh, myself, you know, whether it's on sustainable branding or, or other kind of things. And it's, it's fun to hear people's different methods. So that's a good one. I like that. Yeah. Have so, you read the book uh, Love Marks? Love Marks? No. What's that book? Yeah. Check that out. That's all about building brands that uh, connect oh, cool. people's hearts. Okay. So since, you know, this group is called Evolve and we've been talking a lot about career evolution and stuff, how do you, how do you personally keep evolving, whether it's 
as an individual, as an entrepreneur, as a human, a business leader, a citizen, whatever, how do you keep make sure you keep moving forward? I'm always taking on challenges. You know, I've never started a company, so I start a company. I've never written a book, so I write a book. I like to really, you know, push myself outside of my comfort zone. I know that that's not for everyone, but that's just kind of how I've always been. I mean, even in high school, my senior year quote was, um, if you don't risk anything, you risk even more. And that's sort of how I've I've lived my life. And so right now, um, I see this book as a bridge to probably the next chapter in my professional life, which would be working more at a policy level. Oh, nice. the, the book aims to inspire people in their homes. You know, that's the, that's the ground up. <laughs> and also give them some suggestions, you know, how to encourage their communities to say goodbye to plastic and how to communicate with policymakers around saying goodbye to plastic. But oh, nice. I, I would like this book to be part of my journey to work potentially for an international environmental organization that has humanitarian projects, you know, in developing countries and is putting together policy, because I think I have a pretty good understanding of, you know, how this issue synthesizes, you know, and all the various players and how we have to dance this together. And then I talk about it in the book, you know, people say, oh, you know, all of the plastic is flowing from the big rivers in South Asia into the ocean. Why aren't they doing a better job of controlling their plastic? Let's blame them. Well, you know, their daily per capita plastic use is just a fraction of what ours is. And a lot of that plastic Mm -hmm. is there from here, you know, so (laughs) let's look at this all together now. Yeah. (laughs) Look in the mirror a little bit, yeah. Yeah, so I'm I'm likely going to move move in in that direction. Great, yeah. That sounds just like you said. The best path for growth is taking on challenges that'll push mm-hmm. you into new areas. So pushing more into that kind of policy area sounds like a good next step. And I'm totally seeing different editions or kind of guidebooks or the things that flow from Goodbye Plastic to, like you said, like policy advice or communities or anything else. So it could be a lot of future books in your path as well. So with that said, where do people go and find this book? The book is available through Penguin Random House. So it's globally distributed. Uh, A lot of people do like to buy on Amazon and it is available in Kindle. I'm hoping that we're going to have an Audible as well. My publisher has said that we... If we have enough sell through, you know, then we'll do an audible. But I love to listen to my books. So yeah. that's another thing that I'm um, thinking about challenging myself with is possibly narrating my own audible. Um, yeah. So it is available on Amazon. I think the best place to buy the book would be to contact your local independent bookstore and ask them to carry it. So it's Say Goodbye to Plastic a survival guide for plastic free living. And it's by Sandra Ann Harris. And because it's distributed by Penguin Random House, you could ask, anyone could ask their indie bookstore to stock it and Penguin will provide it to them on consignment. So if it doesn't sell, it's at no risk to the bookstore. So I would absolutely love that. We also are selling it on our website, the hardback, um, ecolunchboxes.com. 
in our product catalog alongside uh, stainless steel, you know, food containers in our line and accessories. And we're going to be putting together some holiday gift kits so people can get inspired. And then they can also ship a friend or a loved one the book along with some tools, you know, a plumber needs a hammer, a plastic free person needs an eco lunchbox. So yeah, they're exactly. not a plastic container or a throwaway. And so we'll put together some sets and have it available that way. So they're, it's widely available. That's great. So if you buy on Amazon, leave a, a nice review, of course, because everybody loves those. Otherwise, you know, find your local bookstore, support local communities, um, or even just go straight to eco lunchbox because that way you can get your tools at the same time. That's perfect. Well, we'll we'll leave everyone with those thoughts. I appreciate you taking some time out of your busy entrepreneur, author, humanitarian schedule to chat with us. And thanks for helping her continuing to evolve and helping other people evolve with you. Thank you, Gage. It's been so much fun to have this rambling conversation (laughs) and, and share. It's just been a joy. Yeah, always a good chat. Cheers. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Sandra, her company, or her book, go to ecolunchboxes.com. Subscribe to our podcast and YouTube channel for more innovator interviews, expert advice, and leadership discussions. If you like this episode, leave a heart, thumbs up, or review, and share it with your colleagues. As an ever-evolving show, we also love feedback, so send us your thoughts or ideas for who we should talk to next to evolve at modernspecies.com.